0: Is God's word to us this morning. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with, with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Isaiah 40 tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. I'm going to pray for us. God, would you speak to us this morning? Your spirit that rushed upon David, would it rush upon us? Your spirit to our spirit, change us, change our hearts as we are in your word, your truth unto us this morning. Remove me, the one who gets to preach, so that Christ, you might be seen and experienced today. In your name we pray. Amen you can have a seat. Well, I would, I would venture to say that uh, if I were to ask you, the majority of you here this morning, if you read the Bible on your own, uh, if you read it, you feel way more comfortable reading the New Testament than you do the Old Testament. And, and as pastors of this church, we have a deep desire to equip you to understand the whole Bible, to understand that the God of the Old and New Testaments are the same God. That there is one story of salvation that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelation 22. That there is continuity throughout Scripture. Listen to the continuity between the Old and New Testaments just as it relates to David. The life of David who we're studying over the next 12 to 13 weeks. This is all from the New Testament. Very opening words of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. We just celebrated Christmas when the angel appeared to Mary and told her, you will have a son and he will sit on the throne of your father, David. We read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we often see surprising individuals interacting with Jesus, and then all of a sudden they're crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus rides into Jerusalem and his last days on Palm Sunday and the people shout hosanna son of david Here's the truth the more we get to know david the more we get to know jesus Do you want to know Christ Let's get to know david You know we we this past week has been actually the 3 year anniversary mark of Christ Central Church January 11th 2014 was when we first had our like, launch service. And as we move forward as a church, we head into this new year of 2017, I am confident that I don't want, that I do not want to die on the hill of many secondary and tertiary issues that often divide the church. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not saying they're not worth discussing and learning. We will do those things. But I know without a shadow of a doubt Christ Central Church, that we will die on the hill of knowing Jesus, yes. that we will keep Christ central in our church, and that we will trust and rely on the scriptures that God has given us to do just that. So let's get to know David so that we know Christ. You now, even if the Old Testament seems foreign to some of you, and I bet most of you have probably heard of David, right? At least the story that we'll look at next week. The story of David and Goliath. Uh, it's a story, David and Goliath, that's become commonplace in, in our language. Uh, I always love when March Madness, one of the best sporting events of the year, rolls around. And uh, often the announcers will say the, the David of Marquette will face the giant of UNC, or the David of Marquette will face the giant of Duke. I'll let you decide which is the greater giant, UNC or Duke. It's an analogy that's commonplace. David is a known biblical figure. Yet, I, I think when we get more in-depth into the story of David, you're going to be surprised at what you'll learn and how much of the story we really don't know. The David story in First and 2 Samuel, it's the longest single narrated story in the whole Bible. It's, in fact, it's one of the longest single narrated stories in all of antiquity. And so what I want to do this morning is give you a little bit of a light intro into David, and I want to couple with that, helping us learn how do we read this thing we call the Bible? How do we read it? You know, Many of you know, before I planted with Timothy, this church, uh, six, I guess it started like six years ago. Before I planted, I was a campus minister at UNC Chapel Hill. And I've shared this before on a sermon on a Sunday morning, but one of the professors at UNC Chapel Hill... Uh, one one of the religious professors, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is an amazing teacher, uh, but would claim he he was once a professing Christian and while in grad school recanted of his faith and now claims to be a non-Christian. And Dr. Ehrman, I learned while at UNC, would begin most of his classes in this manner. He would say, how many of you here today call yourself a Christian? And most of the class would raise their hand. And then he would say, how many of you believe that the Bible is God's word? Much of the class would raise their hand. And then he would say, well, how many of you have read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Ten percent of the class would kind of sheepishly raise their hand. Then he would ask, well, how many of you have read all the Harry Potter books? And much of the class would raise their hands. And then he would proceed to say, how can all of you here who call yourself a Christian read from cover to cover all seven Harry Potter books? Yet this God you say you believe in has revealed himself to you and you have not read his revelation from cover to cover. Now I think he has a great point. And I I don't love the tactic that he's using to kind of get first year students at UNC on shaky ground so that he can kind of debunk their faith. But I do think he makes a great point. If the God we believe in has given himself to us in the scriptures and we believe this book is different than any other book, that it's living and active and that God brings his spirit spirit to bear upon our spirit with this book, why do we not read it from cover to cover? Now, I think perhaps you would say, I don't know how to read it. It's difficult to read. This one book right here is Made up of 66 books, written in three languages over 1,500 years by dozens of authors, numerous genres, diverse audiences. How do we read it? It is, it's intimidating, right? So, the first thing I want to address with you this morning is how not to read the Bible. How do we not read the Bible? In my study of David, I've been influenced by many scholars, theologians, pastors. Not sure if anyone has helped me more than Eugene Peterson. Uh, Peterson says that there are two common ways that we often misread the Bible. Here's the first way he says that we misread the Bible. We dress it up. We dress it up. We have a tendency to read the Bible as though the Bible is G-rated. That it's nice, it's neat, it's clean. Peterson says that it offers some kind of boutique spirituality to us. We can read this David story even this morning and we read into the story an overly pious david we we look and go oh how cute of david the youngest brother out taking care of the sheep the shepherd he becomes king and he's going to save israel and we read david as though he's this fairy tale figure right some male cinderella who wasn't invited to the party with his brothers and father and Samuel. He's left doing the domestic chores of shepherding and caring for the sheep, but all of a sudden he's going to rise up and become king and save his people. But that is not the picture that we get of David in 1 and 2 Samuel. David's anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. He'll go on to reveal himself, and you'll see as we look week after week, he reveals himself as a murderer, as an adulterer. David is far from innocent. The very last words of his life to his son Solomon are go and kill. He gives hit orders for his last words. David is an unfortunate parent. He is an unfaithful husband. Peterson says from a historic point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain who had talent for poetry. He he wrote most of the Psalms. He was an incredible poet. But he was a barbaric chieftain. He was a barbaric man. So please, don't dress up the Bible. Don't tone it down. Don't make it something that it's not. We're not going to see a portrait of David throughout Samuel as this always handsome boy who slays the giant. If we read the Bible that way, it leaves us shallow. It leaves us plastic with no substance. And that's dangerous. Here's a second way we misread the Bible, is that we moralize it. We moralize it. We make the Bible a moral handbook. Somewhere along the way, many of us pick up this bad habit of extracting from the Bible what I think we can pretentiously call spiritual principles, moral guidelines, and then we force ourselves or we force others into our hope for their life or for our life that we think God gives. Now, I grew up as a kid, I think most kids grew up, loving Michael Jordan, right, Who doesn't love Michael Jordan? I played basketball growing up, and I would be in my backyard, and I would pretend to be Michael Jordan on Craig Elo, like shooting. Like, I knew I would never dunk like Jordan, so maybe I could shoot like Jordan, and so uh, I wanted to be like Mike. Do you remember the famous Gatorade commercial? It was one of the, like, the biggest Gatorade commercials of all time, like Mike. If I could be like, want to be, you want to be like Mike, right? <laughs> Made me want to be like Mike, Michael Jordan even more. Now, I'm afraid most of us grew up hearing the Bible taught in the same vein as that commercial. Like David, go and be like David. Go slay your giants. Go be like Abraham in Genesis. Step out in faith. Go be like Peter in the New Testament. Be passionate and take a stand. This type of Bible reading is harmful. It's harmful because it places a great burden on us with expectations we can never live up to. I mean, really, go and be like David. Go face your giants. Do you know how many giants there are out there, no matter how talented or how gifted you are, that you will never be able to slay? Death, cancer, violence that's all around us. This is a harmful way to read the Bible. And those who have kind of adopted this way of reading will view Christianity through this lens. And when they face unslayable giants... And they cannot overcome them, no matter how much they tried to believe, will often chuck their faith altogether because they can't slay the giant. And that may be you this morning. And I will tell you, if you've been taught to read the Bible that way, it's it's dangerous and it's harmful, and I'm sorry. Reading the Bible this way makes you think you are the central character of the Bible. And if you read it with you as the central character to go be like David, you're going to end up frustrated and angry and discouraged in this life. My hope and prayer for you and for us here at Christ Central is that you will know we love the Bible. And I pray that you will never leave on a Sunday morning thinking that you need to go be like this character. Now the Bible has models and examples, but it's not a book primarily full of models. Museums have models magazines have models the bible is a story a story that we are invited into to be a part of with jesus as the main central character so let's look at how we should read the bible Look at how we shouldn't let's look at how we should read the bible Uh, i bet most of you have worn worn sunglasses at some point in your life Uh, I, i will occasionally wear them around town but i always wear them if i go fishing If I go fly fishing, which I don't do enough, I will wear brown-tinted, polarized sunglasses. And as I fish on the stream or the river, everything around me has a brown tint. Everything is tinted. As Christians, we believe here at Christ Central that the Bible is trustworthy, that it's reliable, and it's true. We believe that the true reality of life is found in the Scriptures, not in our perception of life. In other words, the Bible is to be the lens that we view all of life through. Everything we see, everything we experience in this life is to have a tent, a scriptural tent. But what ends up happening for most of us is that we view life through the lens of our experience or our knowledge, and then we try to fit the Bible into our experience or to our knowledge. The lens of tint of most of us is our own life experience. And when we do that, we miss the Bible. We miss what the Bible is saying, and we reduce our life to this echo chamber where all we hear is the sound of our own voice or our own experiences. The Bible is to absorb the world. The world does not absorb the Bible, and that is an extremely hard shift. That is a world and life you put on some sunglasses, see through a different tint kind of shift. To do so we have to see that the Bible is a story. A unified story with four acts: creation, Genesis 1 through 3, the fall into sin, Genesis 3, until Jesus comes, and then we see chapter act 3 of redemption in Christ and by Christ, and then we see the restoration of all things at Christ's return. This is the story, the unified story of Genesis to Revelation with one central hero, Jesus. In this story that we're called to participate in. Have you ever wondered why, since the time we learned to speak and children learn to speak, we demand to, to be read and told stories? We love to watch a movie or read a book because we love to envision ourselves into the story. Story is, a, is the primary way in which the revelation of God is given to us. The Bible starts in Genesis 1, in the beginning. Now, uh, yes, the Bible has different genres can be hard to interpret prophecy or, or poetry. I'm not minimizing this, but from beginning to end, the Bible is a story that we as followers of Christ are to make our story. So let me ask, how does that affect you? Why do I say that? Why is that so important? Why is it so important that we see the Bible, a story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that we are called to participate in? First one is that I think it, I actually think it reverses the mistakes we make when we don't read the Bible properly. So here's my first point. Instead of being shallow and plastic like we are when we kind of misread the texts of the Bible, reading it as story allows us to be earthy, gritty, real, and honest. We live in dirty Durham. We live in the gritty city, right? I've always loved that mantra. I've loved it because what it means is that we're a city that wants to be real and honest and not fake and not plastic. We want to be real. And the David story, like most Bible stories, presents us not with this polished model, but with a human being with rough edges. David at times appears to be this living contradiction. He's the least of his brothers, out taking care of the sheep when Samuel comes looking to anoint the king. Shepherding was the most menial of tasks. He had the, 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 the most menial of tasks among, amongst all the brothers. He's, he's an afterthought to his father and his brothers in regard to who will become king. I mean, he is the baby brother. He is the runt of the family who then becomes the anointed king. And we'll see that he has many opportunities to kill King Saul, to take over the throne. But instead, David waits patiently, trusting the Lord. And we see him, which we'll see next week, step out in faith and defeat the God-defying giant Goliath. While at the same time, he will sleep with Uriah's wife Bathsheba, He will plot and kill Uriah, who was a faithful, loyal soldier in David's army. He will lie and pretend to be a madman. He'll slaughter a whole town just to keep his cover. So what we see in David is a human being who is fighting and praying and loving and sinning. We see him angry and devious and generous and dancing with joy. The Christian life is full of conflicts. It's full of mistakes. At times it can feel like we're a, a walking contradiction. Full of joy and sorrow. Dancing and weeping. That's human life. It was David's life. And As we're invited into the gospel story, we're invited in with hearts that are sometimes loving and sometimes unloving. Sometimes we're obedient and sometimes we're disobedient. Which leads me to the second way of reading the Bible a story that reverses and corrects our mistake is that instead of you being the central character, if you read it as a model or or moralize it, reading the Bible story gives Jesus as the hero. Look at verse 7, which is the key verse to our passage. I think it's one of the key verses to the whole David story and really one of the key verses to the whole gospel of Christianity. It says man or people or the world. Looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to spend just a few minutes and break that down for you. Man or the world looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The world looks at outward appearance. I don't think I have to convince you much that that is true. That is true. We've all been kind of taught how to, how to do this. Have you heard the names Ted Bundy or Andrew Cananon? Ted Bundy was a serial killer in the 1970s. Andrew Cananen was a serial killer, went on a three-month killing spree in the 1990s. Bundy killed women. Cananen killed men. The most famous person Canan killed was Versace, the designer. Do you know the common thread of both Bundy and Cananen? They were both handsome men. People looked at these two men, saw their appearance, and were convinced that they were nice men who could be trusted, and so they followed them. They looked good, but they were monsters. Our world and our culture has taught us to judge someone by the way they appear. Maybe you know somebody who married somebody who was a knockout. Everybody thought, man, they won the grand prize. The person this married, they were just good looking, right? But then in marriage that person actually becomes a monster. We know people like that. That's why it's important to vet potential employees. Someone can win you over very quickly in the first first appearance. They appear to be great, but over a period of time, it becomes a disaster. Judging by appearance is what many of us do on social media, Facebook or Instagram. We see good-looking people having a good time, and we compare ourselves to them. And our country has taught us to judge by the appearance of race to profile people and make assumptions because of the color of someone's skin. The world looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. That's scary and comforting. It's scary to know that the Lord sees everything in my heart. Honestly, I think if all of you knew everything in my heart, you would not come back to this church. You wouldn't. I'm glad only he knows everything in my heart. British theologian J.C. Ryle said, heart is the main thing in true religion. Not doing, not ritual, not your external, but the heart is the main thing. And heart's not just emotion, it's the control center of our whole life. And so as we read the Bible and we see broken, sinful people like David, it allows us to be honest about our own lives. Our hearts that are broken and sinful. And then the Bible gives us good news. Gospel news. I love 1 John 3.20. It says God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything about us. And yet He still loves and pursues us. The point of being in the story of salvation that we, we are to participate in with Jesus as the hero, is to have our hearts changed by Jesus. That's the point of it all. That's the point of life, is to have our hearts changed by Jesus. Luke 24, after Jesus resurrects from the dead, he's walking on the road to Emmaus and he appears to two men who are talking about this man who passed away, and they don't know it's Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus explains how everything in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, from the law to the prophets, testified about Jesus. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The man looks on outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart, is not saying, oh, sweet and nice David. Good little David has such a good little heart. I've already showed you he doesn't. But what David wanted... And what David longed for is for God to change his heart. It's for God to change his heart. And so how does Jesus change our hearts as we're in this story? I think our text gives us two ways. The first is through sacrificial substitution. Go back to the passage. Samuel enters the town of Bethlehem, the same city that we celebrated at Christmas where Jesus was born. And as the prophet Samuel enters, the elders of the city are scared. Do you come peaceably, Samuel? They know he's a prophet. They know he could call down God's destruction. And and Samuel says, I've come peaceably to sacrifice, to make a sacrifice unto the Lord. See, sacrifice was required in the Old Testament. They had to take a cow and they had to slaughter it. And that was earthy and that was bloody and it was smelly and it was loud. But to be in God's presence to be in relationship with him, there was need for some other to shed blood. David doesn't have a good little heart. He was a man after God's heart because he believed and trusted in a substitute for himself. David trusted that someone else would come, a Messiah that we know of as Jesus, who would sacrifice himself, shed his own blood, a bloody, loud, graphic, once and for all, sacrifice upon the cross to wash and to cleanse our hearts. The substitute of Jesus is what cleanses and offers forgiveness to change our own heart. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you can turn to Jesus, the Son of David, and be made clean? No matter what you've done, you can turn to Christ Perhaps for the first time or perhaps for the thousandth time this morning. And know there is a substitute who was sacrificed for you to receive the grace and mercy. To cleanse you from any sin you have committed. Here's the other way Jesus changes our hearts. By divine habitation. Not only by substitute, but by divine habitation. After David's anointed, the very last verse of our passage is verse 13. And I love this verse says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of God rushed upon David. As we turn to the hero of the story, the Son of David, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, rushes upon us. We are all anointed with the Spirit of the living God. He dwells richly within each of us, changing us from the inside out, changing our hearts. And when this happens, we begin to do things that aren't natural to us. Not always things like slaying the giant. But rather, things that are maybe a little more difficult, like loving our neighbor and loving our enemy, and holding our tongue and being patient, and speaking words of life and encouragement instead of criticism and discouragement. Saying no to fleshly and worldly desires and yes to righteousness and godliness. Knowing Christ will change our heart. And we can be honest about our struggle and trust the cleansing that's offered in Him. And that He who began a good work in us by His Spirit will complete it by His Spirit. See, knowing the story of Jesus, it's vital, church. It's so vital because knowing the beginning and the middle and the end gives us hope in the midst of pain and brokenness. Whether it be from the pain of losing a loved one or of a marriage failing, or of children going astray, or of violence in our city, or hunger spreading throughout our world. We know the story. And we don't let our pain and anguish become central, though it's real. We see the whole picture. And we know there's the hero, Jesus, who is coming back and will one day make all things new. The one story that contains all the stories in the Bible and that contains our story is this story. God won't lose. The kingdom of God will prevail. Christ will return and the author and perfecter of our faith will gain the glory. And the church will be triumphant. Though now we struggle, though now we are living contradictions at times, we put our hope in Christ who will return. Do you believe this? Will you believe it? I hope you keep coming back and checking David and Jesus out with us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to know more of who you are, God. That we would see Christ clearly, that the lens by which we view all of our life in this world would be your truth. Help us to understand who you are. Change our hearts, we pray, through Jesus and by your Spirit. Amen.